Welcome to the Masculinist Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Wren. To keep up with all the content and subscribe to my flagship newsletter, please visit themasculinist.com. And now for today's episode. Hello, this is Aaron, and welcome back to the podcast, everyone. I hope you had a great weekend. You know, I was in D.C. late last week. It was uh, great, again, to start being out and traveling again. Uh, I only really made one trip the the whole pandemic. I mean, I made a few little driving excursions in Indiana, but uh, it's actually great to be back in the air. I never thought I was going to say that again. Again, I've sort of wrapped up my my series on the old Protestant establishment, and so I thought I would just do a few standalone episodes of the podcast, maybe a shorty this week, because I've got the newsletter coming out this week. In fact, I just recorded the newsletter audio version immediately before recording this podcast. So there'll be plenty of audio content this week. A lot of people really seem to like listening to the newsletter uh, on audio for some reason. I thought maybe it would just annoy everybody, uh, but it gets essentially as many downloads as everything else. So I'm sure a lot of people have it set up to auto-download, but uh, it does seem to be pretty popular. So, uh, you know, hopefully you guys enjoy it. And if you don't, if you don't like it, you can just skip over it. But maybe I won't go too long today. But I thought I'd just do a piece on what it means to be red-pilled in kind of the general sense of the word. And I was I was thinking about this because, you know, occasionally I will mention in my newsletters or posts or something that, you know, contrary to what you might think, uh, listening to the American pastor, it is actually women who initiate the vast majority of divorces. Again, the, the exact number varies by uh, the source you look at, but it's somewhere around 70%. So that's like a massive disparity between male and female initiated divorce. In fact, if women filed for divorce at the same rate as men, half of all divorces in the United States would be eliminated overnight. And this is one of the best known statistics in social science. I mean, there's, there's nothing hard you have to do in order to go research this. It's all over the internet. But it's never something that I've seen in a Christian marriage book. Never heard it once in a Christian marriage sermon, even from people who use a lot of statistics. So I just kind of think, I mean, like, do they not know? Because if you don't know this, then you probably shouldn't be writing about marriage. Or did they deliberately disguise it? Which is, you know, maybe even worse. But I do think it's notable that it's absent. But whenever I mention this fact... I almost always get at least one email from somebody saying, don't you know that the reason those women are filing for divorce is because men are terrible. The men are forcing them to file for divorce. So they'll make some assertion like that. And of course, they don't claim all cases are like this. But essentially, the idea is, hey, you should not be looking at who files for divorce but you got to be looking at like what was going on in there. Well, you know, I mean, I'd agree with that at some level. But what I find really interesting about this is here's a statistic. Who files for divorce? 70% women. That's totally missing. And you just merely mention the statistic, which I rarely do without clarifying and say, look, it doesn't necessarily tell us exactly what was going on in that situation. You still get attacked. And not one of these people who's attacked me on it has ever sent me a link to a study has ever like implied that they've read even a single piece of literature on it. Uh, they, they didn't say, well, hey, um, Aaron, you know, there's there's like pretty good evidence that shows that the majority of women are filing for divorce over adultery. There's actually no evidence on that. In fact, the truth is, the, the literature that I've seen 
Um, you know, and I hesitate to really try to draw conclusive, um, uh, conclusive, um, you know, statements about literature, uh, uh, academic literature when I, you know, I'm not an academic and I haven't done like a thorough literature review on it, but I would just say, I don't think there's conclusive evidence, uh, that you can draw about the nature of this. There are some papers out there that we'll talk about. Uh, there's a famous paper called these boots are made for walking. Uh, that, uh, it's a pretty nice title that basically says women file for divorce, um, you know, when it, for opportunistic reasons, when their assets to appropriate or they expect to get custody of the kids. But there, I mean, there are other, there's other literature with other findings as well. I mean, I would say that, you know, I'm aware that there are some correlations. Everybody knows, Hey, there's correlations between, um, relative male, female income and divorce. So a man who loses his job, is more likely to end up divorced. Now, that also means that he's more likely to divorce his wife. So it doesn't just elevate her risk of dumping him. But there's, so there are some correlates like that. But this idea that we have like super rigorous understanding of exactly what's going on in these circumstances, I'm not going to say that we actually do. But I just find it industry is that the assumption, you bring up the stat, which is, you know, either completely ignored or, you know, outright hidden, in all the church discussions on marriage, and all of a sudden, the very first reaction is, hey, you know, it must be these women kind of must be justified. You're ignoring the thing here. And I just find that interesting. It's like there's a, there's a tremendous unwillingness for people to contemplate that the reality of divorce might be the opposite of what's traditionally been marketed by the church. And again, I don't blame these people too much because, you know, again, I don't think, I mean, when I say attacked, I mean, look, I wasn't getting like beaten up that much about it. Okay. It's not like you're terrible. You're stupid. It wasn't anything like that, but it's just kind of like, Hey, you know, probably justified, whatever. And I think there's like, I think it's understandable that when you've spent your whole life marinated in a particular worldview, that it is very difficult psychologically to let go of that worldview, even in the face of new information, Right. It's just like this. How often do people change political parties or change their mind on an issue because some new data came up? Almost never. We we have these worldviews and they tend to be almost impervious to change. In fact, there's a book. I mean, it, it may be, um, is it called When Prophecy Fails? I'm not sure exactly the name of the book, but there's a very famous study that was done of these doomsday cults. Uh, you know, people who predicted the end of the world on May 25th or something like that and what happened uh, to the followers of those groups when the predicted day for the end of the world came and the world didn't end? And a surprising number of people end up doubling down on their belief in the cult. It's like we can't unprogram ourselves from this. And so this is very related, I think, to the idea of being red-pilled. So the, the term red pill uh, comes from the movie The Matrix. So if you, you Presumably everybody's seen The Matrix, but if not... Uh, there's this character named Neo who's hearing about this thing called the Matrix. He's trying to find out what it is, and he comes across uh, this guy, Morpheus, who offers to show him the reality of the Matrix. He says, nobody can tell you about the Matrix. I got to show it to you. He's like, here's a choice. He offers him a choice of a red pill or a blue pill. He's like, look, if if you take the red pill, you find out reality, right? You find out how deep the uh, the rabbit hole goes. If you take the blue pill... Uh, you know, you'll, you'll wake up in your bed and, you know, this will, this conversation never happened basically. And so taking the red pill, he takes it, of course, and he discovers that he has been living, uh, he's being used as essentially a battery storage device by, 
Um, I'm guessing it's a spoilers here, but I mean, this, this movie is, uh, you know, I'm assuming everybody's actually seen it. I'm just refreshing, you know, that, that machines have taken over the world in the future and all of humanity are essentially enslaved as batteries in these pods. And this red pill, you know, ejected him from this matrix, which is this, uh, you know, hallucinatory world that keeps the human brain occupied. And now he sees reality, which is terrible, right? It's a terrible reality. Welcome to the desert of the real, as Morpheus tells him. And so there's this idea that knowing the truth is bitter, it's terrible. And uh, as the other character, Cypher, in the movie says, why, oh, why didn't I take the blue pill? And I can't remember, uh, I read one time exactly who first started using the term red pill to talk about this idea that you're being unplugged from an old way of thinking into some new, more accurate way of thinking. I uh, called it red pilling, but it's definitely been adopted by the manosphere uh, and people to talk about uh, gender relations. And so this old kind of like boomer con idea that, you know, uh, it, it's always, you know, the man who dumps his wife and children, deadbeat dads, abandoning their family, all that stuff. And then all of a sudden you start seeing the truth, which is very different from that. That's a red pill moment. And the key is the red pill moment is very, very difficult to achieve because a red pill moment, whether it be, you know, sexuality and politics and anything else, red pill moment is, um, you know, very painful. It involves letting go of essentially the entire worldview, letting go of something that constituted our world as we know it. And the movie The Matrix in the Red Pill it was drawing on Plato's allegory of the cave. And so in the book The Republic, one of the scenes is this allegory of a cave in which uh, you know, there's, the, there's uh, a people and they're chained up so that they look at a wall in the cave. And there's a light coming into the cave, and the light shines on objects, and those objects essentially cast shadows on the wall. And the people see the shadows on the wall, and they think that the shadows on the wall are the real objects, because that's all they've ever seen. And so the philosopher comes along and tries to tell them, no, these are not the real things. The, the real things are behind you. You're, you're looking at shadows in a wall. Here, let me undo your chains so you can turn around and see reality. And you know, it's been forever since I've read The Republic, but I think you know in this dialogue, Socrates, who's the main character in the dialogue, Plato wrote it, but Socrates is the, is the main character, says, what would they do to the man who tried to unchange them and show them the real objects? Wouldn't they kill that man? And in fact... Of course, there's dramatic irony being employed here because Plato and his readers knew that the Athenians, in fact, did kill Socrates when he was trying to tell them about the world. So there's this sense in which being unplugged from our illusions constitutes such an existential threat, you know, to our self-identity that we would even kill the people who tried to tell us uh, you know, rather than being set free from chains so that we could see reality. Uh, you know, and so that's like a very powerful, I think it's a very powerful statement. I think what it shows is trying to red pill someone on an issue. It doesn't have to be a gender issue. It could be any issue is quite a difficult and audacious undertaking. You can rarely just do it through essentially logical facts and arguments. 
You can't just walk up to somebody and say, hey, did you know women file 70% of divorces? Like that, that fact, even if you can get people to accept that that's real and that's trying to start explaining it away like all the people did, it's really going to be difficult for to get someone to just to just on the basis of sort of facts and logic reconstitute some belief about the world that is primal to their identity. And so we often see this in politics. And so I think that's part of, of um, you know, it's a part of this kind of n- new world that we're in is we have people who are adopting like different views of, of gender dynamics, different views of politics, different views of this that are outside of sort of the menu that American society has been consuming. And a lot of people just think that that's like that's so unbelievably horrible because they can't even like relate to it. They're not even capable of looking at it and evaluating it to see that it, you know, is it true? Is it not true? Because, you know, it, it's threatening to people's identity or the whole structure of their world at some point. And so I think we can look at a, a red pilling as a, um, you know, as a concept related to a transition of this magnitude. It is a transition that involves some painful rejection of beliefs that have been very core to our identity or conception of the world uh, for a very long time. And I, you know, what I have noticed is that it generally involves, often involves people who have experienced some sort of uh, trauma or, you know, uh, complete collapse in their life that, that causes them to rethink things. So when it comes to men finding the manosphere and getting red-pilled, it's often something like a divorce. You know, a, a divorce or some horrible breakup or something that happened with, with a woman that cannot be explained by their, you know, previous worldview, um, you know, opens them up to the world to think about things in a new way. And in fact, um, you know, it's, it's not just that, you know, something happened, right? It's that something happened that caused them tremendous emotional pain, trauma. It broke them down in some way that created an opening in the armor for people to come in with a new idea. And so it often does take something like that. And in, even when something like that happens, people often still don't kind of figure out something's going on. I mean, I, you go back to uh, a guy like David French, for example. You know, David French wrote on the, you know, on uh, the day after the election, 2016, I have never been so wrong about anything in my life as, day, as uh, Donald Trump's electoral prospects. Where it's like, up until about 9.30 last night, I was sure he was going to lose. And so he wrote that, but I'm like, did David French take any stock of the world or change even one belief about it? No. As near as I can tell, he's doubled down. He's actually, you know, exactly the same, uh, you know, and even more so today as he was before that. He never updated his model with new information. Hey, maybe I didn't understand the world electorally. Not saying he would have even had to agree with Donald Trump. I'm not suggesting he should have turned into a Donald Trump fan. I'm just saying he should have maybe thought about the world a little bit differently, but he didn't, and it is. It's like this idea of why prophecy fails. Now, I think the, the challenge with a red billing is it provides this model that says, "I'm living a lie, and now I've taken this, 
I've achieved enlightenment. Now I see the truth. And so what we see in, in the red pill, right? We, you know, in the movie, The Matrix, Neo now sees the truth about the world. Well, I think the reality is there are generally more than two, two states. Most things are admixtures of truth and falsehood. And so I, you know, what I think we ought to be cautious about, which you rarely see on the internet, is this idea that once you become red pilled, now you've got this new truth. Your new truth, hopefully it has more truth than the old truth. I mean, hopefully you're moving in the right direction, but it often contains things as well that themselves might also be false. Your your new cult may be exactly the same as your old cult uh, in a certain way. And I would certainly say that about the manosphere is there's a lot they got right about intersexual dynamics, but there's also a lot they got wrong, you know, morally and, you know, just in the way that they talk about the world. I don't think that they're totally right, but now, you know, you're red-pilled and you just take in this this whole other uh, situation of the world. There was a, a series of books uh, by a science fiction writer named Jack L. Chalker. He's dead now, and um, he wrote the Well of Souls saga and stuff like that, but I think it was called The Wonderland Gambit, and it was uh, it was similar to The Matrix in that people were in these worlds, and then you kind of got unplugged from the world. But what happened was you never went from, you know, the, the shadow world to the real world. You went from the shadow world to another shadow world. And so in essence, right, you weren't necessarily progressing any closer to reality. You were just cycling through essentially uh, fake matrices uh, of the world. And so I think that's I think that's kind of an interesting, uh, in, another interesting model to think about because um, in essence, I think, you know, for those who've, um, you know, for those who've been red pilled, I do think there's this tendency to think, okay, now I've achieved the truth, and we often don't question, oh, maybe our new truth, if you want to call it that, has some things that are true that are better, but maybe there's some other stuff in there that's not. So I say, um, I guess the takeaway from this is one: if you have been red pilled on some topic, whatever, whatever topic it is, using this as a generic phenomenon. Often you want to like pass that along, but it's extremely difficult to to do. And so one of the things, I'll just be honest, one of the things that I do with the masculinist is I spend a lot of time thinking, strategically thinking, how do I spin up people's receptivity to new thinking on some issues? Because you can't just like say, here, here is the full on thing. It's like, okay, let me dislocate your thinking a little bit. Let me give you some some breadcrumbs that you can digest. And it's not because I'm trying to like mislead them or whatever, but I'm trying to provide information in a format that people can take. That's really important to me is to think about how do we create, you know, dog food that the dogs will eat, right? In a sense, because if you just say, no, you're totally wrong about X, here's the truth, boom, 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 that's simply not going to work. So we have to think about, okay, great. If we want to pass something on, how do we actually reach people with it. You know, it's really interesting when it comes to sharing the gospel. I think a lot of people have thought about that. Hey, how do we actually meet people where they are and, you know, introduce them to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ? There's been a ton of thinking about that. And obviously that's the most important thing to think about. So I'm really, I'm really glad that we've done the thinking on that. But I think on other topics we need to be thinking as well, like how do you, if, if you got something that you really want to share with other people, how do you reach them where they are on that? The second thing I'd say is you got to think about, hey, maybe I'm still off base myself in some issues and just have a, you know, kind of an epistemic humility to realize, you know, this side of, you know, the age to come, we're always going to see through a glass darkly. And so while we think that we are updating, you know, our model of the world, 
I think we need to be realized there's a lot we still probably don't know about it. And there's probably some things we got wrong. So we don't want to get too arrogant and too cocky because, of course, being too arrogant and too cocky also turns people off, makes them hard to accept the truth. So there's a couple things there. So definition of a red pill, it must involve some sort of really painful dislocation, difficult to accept dislocation from our old way of thinking. It's really hard, therefore, after you've been red-pilled, after the after you've been set free and you see the true things, it's very difficult to bring other people on the journey with you. And so that's actually maybe even harder than coming to the truth yourself. And then third, try not to get, uh, let's try not to get ourselves too cocky here. That's the appreciation of myself, first and foremost, to think that we've, we've got it all right this time. So again, thank you. Hope you enjoyed this podcast. Hope you enjoyed this month's newsletter. And I'll talk to you next week.